there there is something remarkable about the willingness of the saints to um, to come together really earnestly, and that uh, that never ceases to amaze me. Um, uh, that when you yeah when when the task is to read a text carefully and read it together in real ways, man, these people show up, right? And when it's time to do something serious for the community, let's go to what a soup kitchen, whatever it is, and people show up and they are there and they're willing to do it together. And uh, that kind of thing is so, so rare in today's world um, that people can form real community in a spiritual sense. Uh, and the saints are capable of doing that. And um, and they're just, it's, it's uh, it gives me faith in humanity in addition to faith in God. It is time for another episode of the Cultural Hall, and you might be looking at the title of this and thinking, uh, "Oh no, what are what what is happening? What are we doing here? We're talking about Isaiah." Okay, come on. Uh, now, before before, now hang on. Don't turn it off. Don't turn it off. Don't even press pause. Don't speed it up so that you can just get through this. I want you to know that we're bringing back one of the greatest guests we've had uh, with us before, Joseph Spencer. He's here with us. If you haven't listened to the episode we did with him, uh, we did one back episode 531. You can be able to listen uh, as we as we chat about uh, Mormon thought, an introduction, a previous book that he's written. Uh, but today we're talking about Isaiah and Joe or Joseph. Do you prefer Joseph or Joe? Can I go, Joe? We can go. We can go, Joe. I love Joe. Uh, I here here is the thing that you have a new book out. It's called A Word in Season: Isaiah's Reception in the Book of Mormon. And here's the thing: the byline, the second line of the book. I already don't know what you're talking about when we talk <laughs> about Isaiah's reception in the Book of Mormon. I, what? Like, can we start maybe there? Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah. So, um, scholars, uh, there's a there's a field of scholarship that uh, gets called reception history, and the idea is. Uh, people are looking at, say, how a certain part of the Bible has been read over time. They call that reception. Okay. Uh, so to speak here of Isaiah's reception in the Book of Mormon is to say, how does the Book of Mormon read Isaiah compared to how other people have read Isaiah over the years? Okay. Well, then let's go there. How does the Book of Mormon read the, read Isaiah compared to how other folks have read Isaiah? Yeah. So that's, uh, I mean, that's, a major part of what I'm trying to sort out in this book. Um, my previous work on Isaiah in the Book of Mormon, I have just been trying to think about the Book of Mormon itself, right? I'm not uh, I'm not looking at how other people are reading it and so on. I'm just saying, what the heck is the Book of Mormon doing? What I'm doing in this book is uh, more of that work, of course. But yeah, I'm trying to see how the Book of Mormon reads it if you set that side by side with how others have read it. So, uh, so for example, um, when Abinadi is interpreting Isaiah 53 and 52, He's asked by Noah's priests to, to interpret a few verses from Isaiah 52, but he not only explains those, but he also comments on Isaiah 53. Uh, I asked the question, how does he sound? Does he sound um, Does he sound unique in the tradition? Does he sound uh, sort of like everyone else? Uh, and, uh, and especially part of my question is, how would that have sounded to the first readers of the Book of Mormon? Would they have hmm. read Abinadi and thought, oh yeah, that's the kind of thing you would expect someone to say about Isaiah 53? Or would they go, what the heck is that <laughs> kind of a reading, right? Um, yeah, and it uh, depends on where you are in the Book of Mormon. Some of it sounds familiar, I think, to an 1830 reader, and some of it would sound uh, very, very new, very different. So uh, the question that immediately comes to mind is, how do you know what people thought 200 years ago or, you know, 2,000 years ago? It's like, well, I bet 
Right. I bet if I was one of the priests, I would probably think, how how are you able to study and even know if what you're you know purporting is even nearly accurate? Yeah, good. So, I mean, the question of how people within the Book of Mormon would understand Isaiah is often very difficult. Uh, with Noah's priests, we can, I think, reconstruct some things, and I do some work on that in this book. Uh, but a lot of what I'm doing is looking at how the whole history of Jews, Christians, Christians, whether Protestant or Catholic or other, uh, how they've read Isaiah, and that we can track. Um, the field of Isaiah, sorry, of, uh, of reception history uh, finds scholars working on just a, a whole host of sources to ask, well, what can we say about Jews in the 13th century and how they read Isaiah? So let's pick up things that are being said in various records and so on. Or how are the early Christian fathers reading Isaiah? Let's take their various sermons and so on. And, oh, look at how they're interpreting this verse. Look at how they're interpreting that verse. Uh, and, of course, we can do the same thing in the early 1800s. We can ask, so how are Baptist ministers talking about Isaiah when they give sermons that have been recorded? How, uh, if we look at, like, evangelical magazines that are circulating at the time when they talk about Isaiah, what do they say about these passages or commentaries that are being published at the time, et cetera, et cetera. And we can start to get a sense, a sense, because of course we don't know what everyday people are saying if they don't write sure. anything, but we can get a sense for how people are understanding Isaiah and what that would mean for the Book of Mormon. So we just look for different passages of, of people of different faith, not understanding and really grasping uh, things, because that's what <laughs> Isaiah means to No, I'm just teasing. Right. But, but I, I guess I would imagine um, that we don't have the market on struggling our way through Isaiah or on, Absolutely. you know, having difficulty of finding our way through it. it do we see that in all other faiths and, and all that? Or are there some folks that really feel like they've got it on lock and we sort of look to them and go, Oh, the Catholics certainly understand Isaiah or, you know, the evangelicals have found a way to unlock the power of Isaiah. Yeah. So one reason people study reception history is to see just how wide the range is of understandings. Right. And so um, when someone's working in reception history, they don't tend to assume like there's the one meaning. Sure. Of Isaiah. Uh, but instead, so, okay, so Catholics at such and such time are reading it this way, but then 200 years later, Catholics are reading it in a very different way. Uh, so um, definitely there are groups of people over the history of Isaiah's reception who have said, now we know we know what this means. This is all perfectly clear to us. Uh, but the fact that lots of other groups have read it differently should make us pause. And one of the things I'm arguing in this book is that if we look over the whole of the Book of Mormon, Different figures in the Book of Mormon read Isaiah very differently. Hmm. Even within Nephite history, there's a history of reception. So, so, so forgive my linear mind. Then, then I kind of get to the end and go, well, if everyone thinking that this could mean something else that's different throughout time, even in our faith tradition, like, is the point to try and glean a little bit from everyone and be like, oh, you know, okay, I like the way that, you know, this prophet maybe looked at Isaiah this way, and, and you know, this prophet kind of looked at it this way. What sort of resonates with me, or do I find truth in all of these things? Or uh, is it just one of those things where you get to the end of it and you go, I don't have to make a conclusion because no one else did. Right. Here we go. Yeah, I think there are several answers I'd want to give to that. So one is that... Um, I think it is important for us to recognize that there's something to learn from various ways of reading a text. And part of that that plays out is that um, different audiences might need something different mm. from Isaiah at different times, right? In the same sense that like a missionary going out is going to, they're going to use this verse in this way to talk to this investigator, but that way to talk to that investigator just because their backgrounds are so different. Uh, so I think one thing we see going on is simply Isaiah needs to mean different things at different times to different people. But also, uh, 
Also, one thing that's very unique about the Book of Mormon uh, in this regard is um, if we're looking at reception history writ broad, we're going to look at how, say, uh, uh, Anglicans have read Isaiah over time or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, what we're asking is, okay, well, here's some Anglican minister, here's some Anglican scholar, here's some average everyday Anglicans and what they're saying about Isaiah. And we can track that. The Book of Mormon gives us uh, prophetic voices, Nephi, Abinadi, but then at its climax, of course, it gives us Jesus himself reading Isaiah. So mm -hmm. one thing that Latter-day Saints have here in a kind of unique way is uh, the idea that uh, we have Christ himself guiding a way through reading of Isaiah. Of course, someone reading the Book of Mormon from outside the faith tradition might go, huh? how do I think about that, right? But for, sure. for believing readers like uh, like us, it's uh, we go, okay, well, here's how Nephi reads it. Here's how Abinadi reads it. Maybe there are different things at different times for different needs, but also like really got to keep an eye on Jesus. What's he doing? As you put your work in a scale with other reception history, do people um, sort of just discount it because they're like, yeah, the Book of Mormon just took and, and you know copied passages and put it in and and sort of discount it, or is this something that you know that an Anglican, that a Catholic, that an Evangelical in their reception history and and studying those things would go, oh, this is a valuable resource to bring into their stuff. Right. So, um, yeah, I think traditionally it's very clear. Uh, most people outside the faith, when they've read the Book of Mormon and found Isaiah there, they just roll their eyes and say, ah, uh, the way that Fawn Brody put it many, many years ago is that whenever Joseph Smith's literary reservoir ran dry, he copied passages from the Book of Mormon, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that many outsiders have felt that way. Part of what I'm trying to do with this book, it's published by the University of Illinois Press, mm -hmm. uh, which is not a Latter-day Saint press, and it's aimed at a broad scholarly readership as well as um, an average Latter-day Saint readership. Uh, so part of what I hope I'm doing here is showing people outside the tradition that the Book of Mormon has interesting and sophisticated things to say about Isaiah. Uh, and whether they buy that the Book of Mormon is from God, uh, still they might go, oh, there are interesting things happening with Isaiah in the Book of Mormon. And that deserves that deserves attention. It deserves a it deserves a hearing uh, about what Isaiah might mean for a certain people at a certain time. Or, uh, or what it might mean for, say, if they're reading the Book of Mormon in a naturalistic vein, uh, it might allow them to say, oh, so how, how does, how how does someone like Joseph Smith make sense of Isaiah in the 1830s? So yeah, I think I'm hoping that's certainly the hope is that this book will uh, will help people from outside the faith tradition uh, take really seriously what Isaiah has is doing in the Book of Mormon. Uh, I want to take a quick break, real quick, and I want to get into some of the like. Uh greater uh appreciation greater understanding the the things that you have learned kind of along the way as you've you know read this reception or you know studied this reception history about other faiths how you have maybe come to understand uh Isaiah a little bit better i'd like to know some of those things maybe enlighten all of us as far as that goes we'll come back we'll do that in the second block of the cultural hall I had an email from someone who listens to the cultural hall. I believe it was a, not a lifer, but a convert who said, Hey, Richie, are you still teaching the podcast classes? And the answer is yes. In fact, I have even fine tuned it more than I ever had before. So you might be asking, well, Richie, how do I get in on that? Well, you can always email contact at the cultural or you can find me on social media, wherever I'm at Richie T. Stedman and reach out and say, Hey, I listen to the cultural hall. I would love to learn more about podcasting or your podcasting 
services, a class, a cohort. There's a group of people. I've even taught uh, the ward historian about podcasting, what it is and how it might be a great benefit to people. If that's something that you're interested in, whether it's for your business or just for your private hobby, maybe something you see your future in, would love to be able to help you along the way. You can find me again anywhere on social media, Richie T. Stedman, or you can uh, just contact us, contact at theculturalhall.com. Look forward to hearing from you. Let us podcast together. To be clear, this is still a show. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, remember you can always send us an email, contact at theculturalhall.com. If you want to send us an email that says, I love that Joe Spencer so much, we'd love to share that email with him. If you want to uh, send us an email that says, I don't understand a single word he said, can you get him to come back and explain himself better, would you please? We'd love that email too. Contact at theculturalhall.com. Always open. Uh, Just let us know that, or just, you should know that uh, most of the time we share those emails here on the show. So uh, I would not send something that you don't want shared. And that's how we are able to to help people be a little bit kinder in their emails. Contact at theculturalhall.com. So uh, tell me, you're, you're studying how Isaiah is received in all these different, you know, cultures and groups and all these things. And uh, mentioning that, you know, uh, within the Book of Mormon, we certainly have a, a, a way, and the different prophets have a different way of being able to read and receive this. What have you gained that before starting into this project that you were like, nah, I didn't know. I didn't recognize that. I didn't see that as far as Isaiah goes. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a ton I've learned about Isaiah in the Book of Mormon, right? Just that to start. Sure. Um, and of course, that's, I mean, all through the book. Uh, but yeah, I learned a ton about the larger world. Uh, and how people have read Isaiah before I began work on this project. And this was nine years in the making. Jeez. Uh, before before working on this book, uh, I had not uh, read much. I mean, I had dabbled here or there or whatever, but this was a, a much more systematic study. And it, it turns out there's a lot of interesting stuff that's gone on with people reading Isaiah. Um, for example, Christians have very traditionally and very often found many prophecies of Christ. And that's Latter-day Saints. Uh, Jews, unsurprisingly, have not found prophecies of Jesus Christ in Isaiah. And so um, so how do they make sense of a passage that, for example, Latter-day Saints read Isaiah 53 and say, that is, that's predicting Jesus and his suffering and so on. So how have Jews made sense of that? And uh, that turns out to be very, very interesting. And, uh, and, and a good sense for that, actually, I think, helps us read parts of the Book of Mormon better. Um, it's uh, interesting to see where uh, certain passages have become part of, say, the liturgy in the Mass. Um, Isaiah 49, for instance, um, is uh, has very traditionally been read as part of the Mass for Christmas, hmm. uh, which I don't think strikes a Latter-day Saint, because we're used to Isaiah 49 showing up at the end of First Nephi and being about gathering of Israel stuff and so on. But uh, there's all this little language in there that Catholics very early on found applicable to Christmas. And so for them, Isaiah 49 is a Christmas chapter, right? Hmm. Uh, And just even realizing that you go, oh, that's an interesting way to read that. I would have never seen that. Um, Of course, you've got uh, texts that have been read and 
in ways that would sound very, very familiar to us, but you've got others that have been read in uh, what seem to us very wild ways. Isaiah 18, which does not show up in the Book of Mormon, uh, but in the 18th and early 19th century, you have American Christians who are reading those as prophecies very specifically about uh, and uh, And they're trying to argue that Isaiah here has foreseen the rise of America in certain ways. The Book of Mormon isn't interested in that passage, despite mm -hmm. its being interested in the rise of America. So uh, I've learned a, a ton. There's just a lot of lot of interesting stuff going on all over the place in the history of Isaiah's reception. You know, I know uh, enough about academics to know that they can take anything and be like, "Man, we are we are jazzed about this," and and I yeah. love it. I love it for that. Uh, yeah. Uh, but I know that sort of as a, a both joking and I know that the sentiment is the same, that when you go, yeah, I spent nine years and we're studying Isaiah. And I would imagine when you tell that to a, a general, you know, average, let's just even say Christian person doesn't have to be a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They kind of either go, I don't understand it, or they roll their eyes and go, man, I hope that you, you know, took your caffeine pills while you were studying that so that you could, you know, stay awake. Um, does that stigma seem to be changing? Are you hoping to be part of the change? Am I, do, am I, have I completely pegged that wrong about folks with Isaiah? No, I think, I think it's really quite fair, especially when we're reading in the King James version um, mm -hmm. of the Bible, Isaiah can just be baffled. Just baffling. Sure. Um, the language of the King James is already 400 years old. And on top of that, Isaiah can seem kind of complicated and so on. If we don't have a lot of historical context, if we don't know a lot about ancient Israelite prophecy or poetic style and so on. Yeah, it's it's rough sledding. It's really rough sledding. Um, but uh, that said, the the entry fee for making sense of Isaiah is actually not that high. Um get a, a good modern translation, and that kind of brings the language down to earth a bit, uh, learn a little bit about history between the 8th and 6th centuries BC, uh, and a whole lot of things come clear. We have a tendency to be looking for one thing when we read Isaiah, we're just looking for Christ, mm -hmm. which is good <laughs> to be looking for Christ. Uh, but a lot of what's happening in Isaiah is talking about other kinds of things. Um, it's talking about the scattering and gathering of Israel in very specific ways. Um, and if we're only looking for things that remind us of Jesus, then it's confusing. But if we start to take uh, a sort of open mind, what's what's this about? Things get a little easier. Uh, and also part of it is just time. Mm -hmm. Spend time with Isaiah and it slowly gets more familiar. You get a foothold here and a handhold there and then other things start to make sense. And um, so it wasn't that it took me nine years to figure out what on earth Isaiah is saying at all. Oh. Right. Um but uh, it, yeah, I think that entry fee is not that high. You don't need to learn Hebrew. Uh, you don't have to memorize a ton of really obscure facts. You don't have to somehow penetrate the mystery. Um, I think uh, I think it's actually not all that hard to get a good sort of point of entry. So uh, with the church sort of, um, I don't know if allowing, but maybe easing on its translation, right? Like, hey, you know what? I've been in Sunday schools where we've done new inspired version from the Bible and, and, uh, you know, uh, I can't remember the other one, but the other one that is very easy to understand. And so you start to have people being able to study the, you know, the Bible that way, a little easier to understand. Are we just setting ourselves up for forever, not understanding it because there won't be a new inspired transver uh, translated version of the book of Mormon. I would imagine we would never, I don't know, maybe not never, but we'll always sort of keep it in the form that it is now. 
And so it's harder for us. It's easy over here. Can we take it over here and put it over there? Will people even make the transition from a new inspired to try and correlate it with the Book of Mormon? Right. Like, are we just putting ourselves in that predicament of, I don't know, will, will we ever understand the beauty that is the book of Isaiah? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, the Isaiah stuff we can, of course, read in, in other Bibles, uh, other translations of the Bible and make sense of it and then bring that back to the Book of Mormon. Um, and uh, and I think that's really worth doing. Whether we'll ever do something like that right within the Book of Mormon. Yeah, I mean, one, that's way above my pay grade. <laughs> that is uh, not a decision. I need I an even... answer right now, Joe. Come on, tell me right now. Are we ever going to do that? Right. They told me that you had the answer. They said <laughs> I wrote a letter to, you know, downtown and they said, ask Joe, he'll tell you. <laughs> yeah, I wish. I wish I had some say in some of these things, right? You're no, right. Um I, I think um I think though that there's reason to think we may make some study tools or whatever it may be that might make some of that easier. Much of the Book of Mormon I think feels pretty accessible mm -hmm. to Latter-day Saints, if if only because of familiarity it so consistently. Um but uh, but there are tools that are coming out all the time. Just released is Grant Hardy's annotated Book of Mormon, published by Oxford University Press. Which uh, one of the most useful things in that little resource, I think, it little resource this massive yeah hundred page block. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but one of the most useful things in that is that it has consistently has footnotes uh, that cite historical dictionaries, mm. so that uh, it'll you'll read a word and look, and it'll be like so in eighteen twenty eight this man's um, interesting. That's really handy and can kind of help people, I think, recognize where language has changed over 200 years. Um, and we may at some point do something like that. I don't know, uh, as a kind of official uh, thing in the church. It's worth noting that in Community of Christ, what used to be called the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, mm -hmm. um, since the 60s, they've had a an updated language version of the Book of Mormon. Interesting. Um, yeah, 1966, I think it was, they published it. It's called the Revised Authorized Version of the Book of Mormon. Uh, and uh, and I think our tradition, for various reasons, has been nervous about that kind of a move. But I wonder if at some point, if only just to make sure that the Book of Mormon is as accessible as possible in missionary work and for younger readers, um, it wouldn't surprise me if we made that that kind of a move. Let's let's get the Fs and the dots and the so on and update that. Uh, we may, we may, we'll see. Hmm. Uh, in in some of the stuff that you sent over to me uh, prior to our chatting, uh, one of the things that that you brought up, and I want to to just sort of bring front and center, is the Isaiah problem. Mm, yeah. Have we addressed what the Isaiah problem is? Is and if not, what is it? And and how does your book deal with the Isaiah problem? Sure. Yeah. This is what the Sydney B. Sperry, what eighty years ago, called it. Right. The Isaiah problem in the Book of Mormon. The idea is just this. Um, there's a there's a massive consensus in biblical scholarship that parts of Isaiah were written much, much later than the prophet Isaiah. Hmm. Uh, so many, many biblical scholars think that whole swaths of the book of Isaiah date much later than Isaiah himself. There's a lot of debate about exactly when certain parts uh, took shape and then what the process of editing it into a final book looked like and so on. But this is a this is a massive field of study, and there's a great deal of consensus uh, in biblical scholarship. That, uh, that there's this complex story of authorship. Um, that raises questions for Latter-day Saints because if the basic picture biblical scholars are working with is true, Nephi shouldn't have some of the chapters he quotes on the breastplates. They should have been written later than he left Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. uh, and Sidney Sperry already, like I say, like 80 years ago, raised this question and said, what do we do with this? 
this is the Isaiah problem. Uh, and it's worth noting that um, lots of people have written about that issue. Lots and lots of people have written about that issue over the years. There's a really excellent essay published just last year, maybe, by Josh Sears at BYU, um, and that where he just summarizes all the different ways Latter-day Saints have made sense of that question, just one by one, this mm -hmm. position, this position, this position, and so on. Part of what I do in this book is say, I think the question doesn't matter. <laughs> so oh, interesting. Kind of a wild take, but um, part of what I do in the book uh, is I want to ask how the Book of Mormon would be read by its very first readers. And uh, so I actually come up with a kind of, I don't know if it's crazy, but maybe I'll say crazy, a crazy little imaginary situation. Uh, I imagine somebody who knows the history of how Isaiah has been read, uh, but who is not one of Joseph Smith's followers, uh, but is sympathetic. And this, uh, this person gets a chance to sit in the room with Joseph and Oliver while Joseph dictates the text of the Book of Mormon. Uh, so all through the book, I'm trying to read through that person's eyes. And of course, that person didn't exist, but <laughs> I'm trying to read through that person's eyes. Um, but in 1829, other scribes, America is talking about multiple authorship of Isaiah. That's just not even a picture in their heads, right? Mm -hmm. uh, there's some people back in Europe that are talking about it at that point, but not not in America. And so in some sense, I can just, in the, for most of this book, I can ignore the question entirely. Just It's not what this person would be worried about. Uh but then by reading the Book of Mormon really carefully, uh, what it is doing with Isaiah, what it is saying about Isaiah, I think we have good reason to think that, um, that the Book of Mormon itself says, if you start getting trapped in those questions of what is, does Isaiah mean that the Book of Mormon isn't historical and so on, then you're actually missing the very point, what the Book of Mormon is doing with Isaiah. So I, I deal with the Isaiah problem briefly, but I don't try to solve it. I basically say that's the last question we need to ask. We've got a whole lot of other questions we've got to ask first. Uh, if we try to decide what about this Isaiah problem, is the Book of Mormon false or true first? We'll never actually read the Book of Mormon and find out what it's doing with Isaiah. When you uh, when you do this book, it's called A Word in Season, by the way. I don't think we've even mentioned that up to this point. Uh, University <laughs> of Illinois, Pre uh, Illinois Press. And a shout out, uh, of course, to uh, my friend Heather, who works over there for University of Illinois Press, who helps us get a lot of the authors. They do a, a great deal of, of Mormon scholarship through University yeah. of Illinois Press. Just a, a, a great job and and always uh, is able to connect us with the the various authors doing just tremendous works. You, of course, being one of them. Um when you go to do something like this, is there a, um, you know, like when you have a, a dissertation and there's a point like that you do the whole thing and it's like, and the final chapter is whammo. Is there, do you have a whammo point or is it just, isn't it interesting? And we just sort of meander our way through all of the interesting things. Uh, I do have what I hope is a whammo. Point. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, so there's there's a kind of general point I'm hoping to make clear across the whole book, and that is just that the Book of Mormon is really, really interesting when it comes to Isaiah, and that's something I think average Latter-day Saints need to hear because they're pretty sure Isaiah is not interesting. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> and it's something that I think people outside the church need to hear too because they tend to think, oh, this is probably just Joseph Smith copying down chapters of Isaiah when he doesn't know what else to do. Uh, so one major point I'm doing all the way through is trying to say this is essential the meaning of the Book of Mormon, the structure of the Book of Mormon, uh, and it's really, really interesting. But if I have a whammo point as I get to the end of the book, what everything is leading up to, it's related to what we were just talking about. Uh, it's that I think the Book of Mormon, uh, as it works through these passages of Isaiah, is essentially, in, in the end, trying to show uh, that we are supposed to relate to the Book of Mormon uh, 
like the Book of Mormon is itself asking us to relate to it as an object of faith rather than an object of scientific investigation. Hmm. And hence, it's asking us through its readings of Isaiah, very specifically through its readings of Isaiah, it's asking us to to read the book uh, without asking about evidence or proofs, uh, but instead to set all of those things aside and ask what this prophetic message is. And then we can talk about uh, these uh, these more sort of intellectual questions, if you will, or evidential questions or something like that. So yeah, they, uh, it's not just that I say, that's what I think. So mm-hmm. here, let's read Isaiah. It's that mm-hmm. I think the reading of Isaiah in the book itself is trying to argue that. So hearing that, I uh, I have a question that I'm going to delicately tiptoe around because I know where you work and all of these things, but I, <laughs> sure. but, it is, but it is worth sort of asking, uh, you know, um, uh, the more people I talk to when we talk about like the Bible, they, they think, hey, you know what? Probably not. That probably didn't exactly happen, right? Maybe it's just a, a, a book and a collection of stories that teach very valuable lessons, very, you know, um, you know, uh, thought out principles, things that have been handed down years over years. And, and, you know, maybe that applies to the New Testament. I think people probably more apply that to the Old Testament when they talk about that. If some, if, if that, if people are to look at the Book of Mormon and, you know, I think at one point the attitude within the church was like, this is a historical, you know, bum, 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 bum. And then, you know, different things have come, come about where people are like, there's no way that this could be. And they didn't have this at this time and, and try and destroy that sort of historical context of it. I, I, I let me think of how I want to phrase this question. Um, could the could the Book of Mormon be very valuable, as valuable as it is now, even if it wasn't a uh, like a, a, a historical telling of a group of people that it's a, a, a collection of, of religious, um, you know, stories to teach for our day, if that question right. makes sense? Totally, totally. Um, yeah, the question definitely makes sense. Um, so I'm, I should be clear right up front. I. 100% believe in the historicity of the Book of Mormon. So um, so I'm talking about the question sort of at a theoretical vein, right? Rather okay. than uh, like my own practical faith vein. But um, so do I do I think that someone can find real spiritual value in the Book of Mormon without believing that it's concrete ancient history? And I think the answer has to be yes. Yep. Not only because I think theoretically that makes some sense, but also because I know people <laughs> that it works that way for, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it can be received that way. Um, if, uh, but I think also one has to be careful about that position. It can be a complicated position to hold sure. uh, in a community that, uh, that places so much emphasis on the historicity of the Book of Mormon and so on, that can become a kind of culturally weird position to occupy. And then it creates frictions and so on and so forth. Um, and the people I've seen who hold that position, uh, well, so to speak, tend to be people who just say like, I just don't talk much about it. I don't go around saying, well, the Book of Mormon is just fiction, but it's inspired fiction. Mm-hmm. If you're saying that too loudly, then it's hard It's hard for people around you to buy that you're not really just attacking the book, right? Interesting. But if someone just says, like, no, what matters to me is this message, right? Um, then that, then I, think, I think that plays differently. But absolutely, I think that's an open position people can hold. Um, for my own part, uh, I, I believe in the historicity of the Book of Mormon, and not on rational scholarly grounds, just on as a position of faith, right? I'm not an ancient historian and I can't prove that this thing fits anywhere in particular in the ancient world, though I've read a lot of stuff and some of it's really amazing. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but for me, it's a position of faith. And uh, it's a position that uh, in some sense, I almost have to set aside, even though that's where I stand. I, I have to set it aside so that I can read the book without getting like letting this little anachronism or that little concern like derail my reading of the book in earnest. Hmm. Yeah, I appreciate that answer because, you know, having had the opportunity in the somewhat recent past to meet someone who's like, yeah, no, I, it's, it is, as you said, inspired fiction is what this person essentially believed. And I went, well, wait, wait, wait a minute. Right. Hang on. Let me wrap my head around this real quick. Uh, and then, you know, to be able to to visit with them and they're like, oh, no, but I'm I'm 100 percent in. I'm doing all the things. But but what it allowed uh, for this particular individual when we were speaking about it is it allowed them to not have to worry about the, you know, and we always talk about or were there horses? What about gold? Did they have the this right? They didn't have to worry about any of that stuff and then could instead focus on, you know, how did this person navigate their relationship with Christ and the coming of Christ and then, you know, being able to with other people and all these things. And I it's funny as like, a you know, a young, you know, deacon within the church the perspective of of a young person that I had to where I am now, I just love being able to see it from all of these different things. And that's what I think is so fascinating about this idea of reception history is it's like, how do these people this and how do those people that? And, and, and that's why I love it. It, it, uh, it buoys up my faith to go, Oh, cool. How did you do that? Oh, you got there that way. I'm not sure that I agree with that, but I can take a little bit of what you said and that can, you know, shore up maybe a part that was a little weaker for me, or uh, I had never even thought about that at all. I have no idea how I feel about that. Let me sit and stew on that for a little while to to yeah. further understand that. Yeah, beautiful. The One of my favorite lines from Jiggle and Kimball, and who knows if he really said it, because a lot of things get attributed to him. Sure. Right? Uh, but he reportedly once said, I can't wait to die and find out if all this stuff we've been teaching is true. Yeah. <laughs> the, <laughs> And sometimes I think that's, that may be the right attitude that we um, like. I fully believe in the historicity of Mormon, uh, and uh, but really, what matters here turns out in the end. Oh no, but no, I'm really glad I got the message. Right? Yeah. I'm really, really glad. Like, wring my hands constantly over whether I could prove the Book of Mormon fits in the ancient world, and much rather gave my time to uh, figuring out what God is saying to the world through this book. Yeah. Uh, let's take another break. When we come back in third block, there's a couple questions we ask everyone who steps into the culture hall. I'll ask those of you as we asked you those before. Uh, plus, we got some uh, final questions about this book, A Word in Season. Uh, we'll talk about that and get to those questions coming up in the third block of the cultural hall. Best DJ in Utah.com. You're right. It's a new ad. What? Well, it's been an entire season since I've recorded a best DJ in Utah.com ad. And well, The wedding season coming to an end at this point, but not really because what happens now is everyone who's going to get married in 2024 reaches out and says, Richie, is it possible? Do you still have this date? And I tell them, yes, hopefully. And then we get you booked. We'd love to be able to work with you. Uh, Travel all along the Intermountain West. Some people call it the Jello Belt. Uh, You can go to bestdjinutah.com to request a quote. You can find us on any of the social medias at bestdjinutah. And uh, we can answer any questions. Affordable? Yes. Over 400 five-star reviews? Yes. Highest rated in the state of Utah? Uh Uh-huh. Go on. It's bestdjinutah.com. And and I'll give you a little hint. It it also helps me to be able to do this, like financially support the cultural hall through that. And you get something in return. 
Hi friends, Dan the Laptop Man here from PC Laptops. You can get a brand new PC Laptops desktop and they start at only $29 a month and it comes with a lifetime warranty. Just check us out at PCLaptops.com. That's PCLaptops.com. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, remember that you can become a Patreon saint of the Cultural Hall. You go to patreon.com forward slash the Cultural Hall. We always like to say, put your money where your ears are. It helps support the great work that we do here. Uh, and uh, I, I would also encourage you, obviously, to get a word in season. You can find the link to it in the show notes, uh, the book by Joe Spencer. I like calling you Joe. I know it's Joseph, uh, birth given, but calling you Joe makes me feel like we're best friends. Um, yeah. Go to patreon.com forward slash that cultural hall, or you can just go to the show notes uh, for the link for the book. So, um, so as we sort of look towards uh, the end of our, our chat today, I guess I would wonder... Uh, you know, people pick up the book, they go out there like, I'm fascinated enough to give Joe a chance. Like, how how is it, uh, are we going chapter by chapter? Is it faith by faith? How do we, what is the structure of this book like? And can people do it in sort of that, I'm going to take a little, digest it, or do we have to read the whole thing to go and understand what your point is? Yeah, that's good. Yeah, so um, because I, men- I mentioned earlier that uh, that I try to read through the eyes, the ears of uh, of this person who's sitting in the room while Joseph dictates the text of the Book of Mormon. Um, as a result, I read I read the Isaiah chapters here in a different order than they appear in the Book of Mormon. Because mm-hmm. if you're familiar with this, Joseph he dictates the lost manuscript, right, and then Martin loses that, uh, and then he continues dictating from Mosiah to Moroni, and only after that does he dictate First Nephi through Omni. And so, uh, so as a result, I actually start here with Mosiah. The book opens with Mosiah. So uh, the book, uh, as I've done it, a word in season is divided into two halves. The first half where we're analyzing Mormon's project with Isaiah. What does Mormon do in Mosiah and third Nephi especially? And then the second half of the book is Nephi's project hmm. with, uh, with Isaiah. And doing it that way, I mean, one, we're hearing how it's coming to Joseph as he dictates it and also how someone would hear it but it also allows us mormon's project is kind of interesting it opens with this this first story about abinadi um, and isaiah and then there's like silence for hundreds of pages about isaiah and then in third nephi christ shows up and wants to talk about isaiah and those are kind of the bookends of mormon's project as we have it so it allows me to sort of say mormon's clearly interested in what's happening with isaiah but he sort of starts with isaiah then leaves it out and then ends with isaiah so what's going on there uh, and in the second half, when you get to Nephi's project, Nephi is systematic about Isaiah, right? It's, there are careful structures of his books, and Isaiah is playing very specific roles, and lots and lots of Isaiah chapters being quoted. Uh, and that allows me to use Mormon's project to sort of set up where things are still a little gentle and a little simpler to set up a lot of the questions. And in the second half, now let's go nuts, right? Let's really dig in. So it's the kind of book that I hope... Uh, I hope it sort of builds nice and slow that way so that someone doesn't feel like we often do coming into first Nephi, second Nephi, just like overwhelmed. Ooh. We can kind of, yeah, exactly. Yeah. We can start a little slow, get our heads around the project and so on. And then we're ready for Nephi. And uh, is it geared towards uh, the, you know, member of the church trying to understand more about, you know, Isaiah and this whole thing? Or do you feel like it's geared towards your your fellow academics to to kind of get in and get after? I tr- I tried very hard. I tried very hard to make it reach both audiences. So we'll see how I've succeeded. Um, I am definitely trying to speak to a larger audience in the book as well as average Latter Day Saints. Um, it is a it is a scholarly book. It's not um, 
it's not uh, written in an everyday kind of Sunday schoolish kind of way. Uh, but I, I really worked hard um, to, to make it accessible. Um, I've written on Isaiah in the Book of Mormon for a very everyday audience before. Um, and uh, this is not quite that. But I do think anyone with with some familiarity with scholarly things, uh, even even gentle familiarity, should be able to make their way through the book. What's your deal with Isaiah? Why do you care so much about Isaiah in particular? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, it's uh, I mean, this is a this is a good Latter Day Saint listening audience, so I think that this is um not out of school to uh to share. My patriarchal blessing um told me uh from the very from very early on in my life that I needed to study the Abrahamic covenants in particular in hmm. scripture, and uh, that that would be a, a major part of my life. And so from very early on, I began reading in scripture, watching for gathering, scattering of Israel. And you can't get far in the Book of Mormon without realizing that is all tied up with Isaiah. Hmm. So from my early 20s, uh, I was trying to figure out Isaiah so that I could understand something that I felt God had pointed me directly to. Wow. I, I appreciate you sharing that. I know that that's something very personal, but it's super cool to know that that has become like your life scholarship because... It's very, you know, very literally, if you believe in patriarchal blessings the way that we do, God given to you. Like, hey, I know you're thinking about some things in life. Here you go. go. Okay, I'm on board. Yeah. Uh, Have you felt like in that sort of journey that uh, because of that calling that that God has given you through your patriarchal blessing, that you've had like, um, I don't want to say extra help, but maybe like confirmed help from God as you've found your way through this or looked at different things to study with in Isaiah or the Abrahamic covenant? Well, that's a good question. Um, I mean, part of what it is to be a scholar, even a Latter-day Saint scholar, uh, and working as a scholar of faith, uh, even then you always hold all of your positions and uh, this is treasures and earthen vessels kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. And so I always want to be really careful, like this is provisional, this is what I've found, this is what the, you know, the evidence I've gathered suggests to me, and so on. But of course, for all for me, all of it is is consecrated work and all of it is work I'm I'm hoping to do uh in the service of the kingdom as much as uh, as I'm trying to do it in the service of the academy. And so um so I sure hope that that God has helped me in various ways and so on. But I always want to be careful never to let that sound like or mean that, well, this was revealed to me. So people have to this, right? But uh, but yeah, I've certainly found a great deal of spiritual fulfillment working on this stuff. Well, and, I, and and in some ways, maybe like that's like that's the thing, right? Where you're like, oh my gosh, I can't do this. Not one more minute. I don't understand. <laughs> I've hit a road, you know, I, I'm at the whatever. But then having that, um, you know, that faith and belief that it's like, no, God wants me to do that. Like that to me seems like it'd be like, nope, okay, get up today was tough tomorrow will be better you know i'll be able to do it that in some way seems pretty significant in a way that you know lines in a patriarchal blessing about something like this could help that's tremendous i think that's awesome um so let me ask you this uh we ask everyone three questions who step into the cultural hall i asked these of you when we visited before but your answers may have changed probably because you don't i don't know that you even remember them but we'll ask Uh, the first one is do you have a calling right now and if so what is it Uh, i do Uh, i am currently a bishop okay how do you like that how do you like that um i i'm a bishop in the most amazing ward i've ever been in in the church so it's a great place to be a bishop um 
it's been it's been grounding is maybe uh, a good way to put it. And especially when you're working as an academic and you can be very ivory tower and very heady stuff. And it's really, really good to come home from work and go sit in an office and talk with people about really concrete, real problems, both spiritual and temporal. And um, so I, it's been it's been really good for me as well as I hope I'm doing some good for my ward. How long have you been a bishop? A little over two years. Okay, so you're starting to get your feet under you and go, ah, I know how this goes. Yep, yep. D does it get, uh, I I've always wondered this because I know a lot of, um, you know, BYU professors also find themselves in church leadership. You know, I, I'm one of those guys that reads the church news and looks at the stake presidencies and goes through the line and goes, ah, that person works at BYU, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> I, I would wonder because... So much of your professional life is with the church. And then because the demands of both a state president or a bishop in your case, so much of your then personal life becomes a demand of the church. Do you ever do you ever uh, just be like, man, you know what? I want to I want to go play pickleball for just a, a two minutes right now. Non-church pickleball. <laughs> is it overwhelming or is it just, man, I love it and and happy to serve? I mean, mostly it's, man, I love it and I'm happy to serve. I will say, though, that like working at BYU is, uh, I mean, it's a job. And so it's it's the church, but like there's a lot. I'm doing paperwork. I'm right. I'm prepping a lecture and I'm trying to think about the arc of a lesson or something like that or whatever. Uh, I'm working on this scholarship project and it's just straight philosophy it has nothing to do with religion or whatever. So it's not like my job is, you know, 40 hours a week of of intensely spiritual work though sure. i hope it's all consecrated right but it's uh so the, it's i don't feel like i'm always like all i do is church mm -hmm. stuff right yeah i also wonder too because of the the kind of things that you study and and being able to visit with your congregants about different things do you do you ever start into something and then you go let me try this again in a different <laughs> in a different sort <laughs> of approach i realize i'm not at byu right now <laughs> swipe that how are you <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I figured that a lot of that out before I got called as a bishop, luckily, right? I was teaching Sunday school for a while and I had to figure out what does the Sunday school teaching situation look like versus my teaching on campus and very different styles. So I think I'm pretty good at leaving campus on campus. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. All right. Second question is, is if you could pick a calling for yourself, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? I wonder what I said last time. I mean, I enjoy being a gospel doctrine teacher. It's... Um, so many people hate that calling and uh and i love it so <laughs> if i can ease people's burden by taking that calling on uh i do enjoy that but um i'm making up a calling though i don't know probably probably gospel doctrine teacher that's uh what, what is it about gospel doctrine that you that you love teaching so much what um i mean one as i just mentioned it's a very different kind of teaching context than i'm used to on campus on campus like this is my classroom. Here's what we're going to learn. Like there are right or wrong answers so far as this class is concerned. Uh, you sit there, I'm a lecture to you, right? Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, but in Sunday school, it doesn't feel to me like that's the task. In Sunday school, the task is to create a real devotional conversation about scripture. And that's a lot of fun. So my teaching style in a, in a ward setting is to spend, you know, five to 10 minutes setting up some information so that people have a better grasp on what's going on in a text or whatever, but then use that to narrow in on just a verse or two. And then just say, what do you think that means? Mm. How do you, how do you make sense of that? What does that mean about the life of faith? And then just generate discussion, just probe and push and get people talking. Uh, so it's, um, 
it's less heady, mm-hmm. but it's way more devotionally grounded, and um, and it creates a real sense of community and spiritual community and award that is, is just a remarkable thing to be a part of. I listened to a, a podcast recently talking about Sunday school and and um, how so many people think that that's the time to like teach doctrinal these things, you know, from you know uh, being up there, but. The way that this uh, particular show talked about it, it, it posited that, like, this is a time to create community. Yeah. And whatever you have to do to to get people to share their authentic selves with other people that can sort of witness their authentic selves and be present with one another, whether or not you, you know, you talk about that there were six at the church when the church was, you know, restored and who signed first and then they were baptized this, like that's important. But but the stress that they made was that this is a time to create community that you don't have in any other form, function or feature within the church. And that made me go, maybe I've been doing this all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's really, really true. I think that's I think that's what it is. And creating a community around the word, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's it's a really beautiful thing um, to get people responding to phrases of scripture together uh, and be, as you say, being their authentic selves, being very open, uh, but in response to the divine word, man, I, I don't think there's a better sense of community you can get in a word. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Last question we ask everyone uh, and you, we ask that you interpret it however you would like, but the question remains, what is your favorite part of your faith? Oh, my favorite part of my faith. I mean, scripture is what gets me up in the morning. Uh, and there's a reason that that's what I've chosen to to do for a living. Um, uh, but also, I mean, I'll add to that. Um, there, There is something remarkable about the willingness of the saints to, um, to come together really earnestly. And that, uh, that never ceases to amaze me. Um, uh, that when you, yeah, when when the task is to read a text carefully and read it together in real ways, man, these people show up, right? And when it's time to do something serious for the community, let's go to what a soup kitchen, whatever it is, man, people show up and they are there and they're willing to do it together. And uh, that kind of thing is so, so rare in today's world um, that people can form real community in a spiritual sense uh, and that the saints are capable of doing that and um man that just it's it's uh it gives me faith in humanity in addition to faith in god question about your scripture study because you uh like as we've mentioned several times and i just like calling you an academic i love that label uh my friend joe spencer the academic do you find that you engage uh in the scriptures differently when you're just like this is my daily reading and i'm looking for spiritual enlightenment than when you're like, and what did Isaiah say? And who, how would this be? And how do you distinguish that? And is it important to do it in a couple of different ways? Or could we just engage the scriptures in one way for all purposes? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. This has changed a great deal over my life. I mean, for the first, I don't know, however many years after I got home from the mission, uh, scripture study looked like one thing, right? There was just kind of one thing I was doing. Uh, but increasingly, you know, through grad school and into my job, it became clear that this was going to be my my daily bread too, right? Like this was how I was going to make a living. And as that dawned, uh, there was a moment where I realized I was not going to be able to, um, like it would feel like I would never get a break yeah. from my work, right? Yeah. Uh, and and that, yeah, I realized at some point that it felt like my entire connection with God was 
um, was academic. And so, yeah, there was a, a moment where I very deliberately had to go, okay, I need to carve out a part of my study of the scriptures that is explicitly devotional, exclusively devotional. I'm not trying to figure anything out. Um, I have to have a part of it that is more like meditative prayer and reading. Um, and if I'm reading this verse, I'm asking, how am I doing before God? Right. Not mm -hmm. what is Paul saying here? Right. Uh, and, um, and yeah, I had to carve that space out. And, uh, and then I had to, at some point say, I'm not allowed even in the other part of my scripture study, because there's a part that's devotional a part that's more figuring mm -hmm. stuff out, but I'm not allowed in that other part to be working on any part of scripture that I'm writing academically. About, right? mm -hmm. so it just has to be something I'm figuring out the book of Jonah for the sake of figuring out the book of Jonah, but not because I'm going to write a paper on it, or I'm going to teach a lecture on it next week or whatever. And um, yeah, I very deliberately had to carve that space out. So there's a part of part of my scriptural life that is 100% devotional. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, and the name of the book, A Word in Season, Isaiah's Reception in the Book of Mormon. Find a link for it in the show notes. Uh, guest, the academic himself, Joe Spencer. It's Joseph Spencer. He'll be back again, I'm sure, because you're always working on something. Is there something that you have in the works? Uh, you mentioned this was nine years in the works, this particular project, something that you're you've been uh, either stewing about or have already started into that we can look forward to in the future? Yeah, there's uh, something I'm well into the writing of, uh, a little book on Hugh Nibley's thought, also for the University of Illinois. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Now, uh, now uh, the the stuff that the uh, University of Illinois do, they have the the smaller kind of books that they have about in different individuals. Is that yep. what your Hugh Nibley book is? Yep, that series, yep. Yeah. Man, that's exciting. When is that? Any idea on hit date? Um, I'm hoping to wrap it up by the end of this next summer, okay. uh, and then uh, and then the review process and publications. Sure. So I don't know; it may be a couple of years before it's out, but I'm hoping to wrap it up in the next six eight months. And and the uh, series with that book, we've talked with several of the the different authors of the ones that have already been published. Um, is it just sort of um, like thought leaders within the church, or how how do they couch who those people are and how they're selected? Well, it's uh, funny you should ask. I'm one of the editors of the series. Well, <laughs> interesting. Tell me then, please, Joe Spencer. Yeah. So Matt Bowman and I edit the series together. And um, yeah, it's, uh, the series is titled Introductions to Mormon Thought. And uh, we uh, the the idea of the series is to yeah, each volume is on some individual um, and uh, and each volume has the same structure. There's a chapter of biography three chapters where you analyze the person's thought, contribution or whatever, and then a bibliographical essay. And um, and the aim is to look at figures from a wide range uh, of aspects of Latter-day Saint and larger restoration history, uh, and just look at the intellectual contributions these figures make. So whether those are like sort of mainstreamy figures, a Bruce R. McConkie or a James Talmadge, or whether these are people sort of on the margins of the tradition, Sonia Johnson, there's a volume coming out on soon, or um, George P. Lee, we have someone writing about, uh, or whether these are people in other branches of the Restoration. There's a volume coming out soon on Joseph Musser, who's the chief architect of the of fundamentalist, right, polygamous <laughs> theology. So uh, yeah, so the series is pretty far flung just trying to think about the Latter-day Saint intellectual tradition. That's awesome. Looking forward to being able to speak with you uh, about that then, and certainly with the other authors of those books. And I know there's, I, I think we've missed one or two along the way, so I got to recommit my efforts to get those authors yeah. to find out about those Mormon thought uh, 
leaders, Mormon thought folks. Uh, Joseph, hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you will be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, Chris at Alpine Lakes Travel, Rick McGee, Debbie Wanless, and Chocolate Cake Bites Podcast will be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat. On the back row, we really gotta go on the Cultural Hall show.